Welcome to the Free Range Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Livermore. This episode is sponsored by the program on law, communities, and the environment at the University of Virginia School of Law. With me today is Laura Candioto, a professor of philosophy at the University of Pardubice in the Czech Republic. She has a, a relatively recent paper, Loving the Earth by Loving a Place, uh, that um, is fascinating set of arguments in there. I thought that um, it would be a fun uh, starting place for a conversation for the podcast. So thanks so much for joining me today, Loda. Hi, Mike. Thank you very much for having me here. I'm very happy to have this conversation with you today. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So, um, you know, just maybe as, a, as a, a, a way into the paper, you know, we talk, sometimes we talk casually, at least in the U.S., we use the term love in a pretty casual way, especially maybe uh, when talking about nature. So, you know, I might say that I love nature, or I love the outdoors or, um, or that kind of thing. But in, in this paper, that's not really what you're talking about. So how do we distinguish the, the love that you're describing, uh, loving a place in this paper from, you know, that more casual usage? Oh, yes. This is a crucial question. Yes, because when we say I love nature, I love going into the woods and stuff like that can just mean that I enjoy doing these activities, right? Like in being outside. But I try to provide a philosophical conceptualization of love. Also because I think that if we take love of nature just in this casual way, we cannot really uh, appreciate the moral and political value that love, love of nature in particular, can have now and how much love of nature can help us in tackling some of the more pressing issues that we are facing nowadays with the climate crisis or climate disaster, we, we can say. So in providing this philosophical conceptualization of love of nature, I start from the uh, philosophical debate on the philosophy of love. And so there we have different accounts. So I start from the idea that love as care. So that it is not just, you know, love, a feeling of enjoyment of doing or being with someone, but caring about uh, this someone, meaning that really working for her well-being. And also this goes well with the account that is called the devalue account. That means that in caring for the your the intentional object of your love, you value this object. So you appreciate some qualities or some specific feature of this, uh, of this object. Or we can also say that this object of love has intrinsic value. And then there is also another account that is the fusion account of love. And this account spells out the idea that when we love, we really want to be one with our beloved so that we are looking for a fusion. And this fusion has been understood in different ways, but many times it has led to the idea that love is something universal, and so it is this idea of oneness with, with the other. So I started providing this map of this philosophical account of, of love, and from there I say that while I, I take a lot from the 
care and value account of love, but I challenge the fusion or the universal account of love. And in doing so, I develop my inactive account of love. So maybe this word is a bit technical, so maybe it could be useful to define define it a bit. So with inaction is a, a specific uh, model of, of mind and cognition that assumes that there is a continuity between uh, life and, and mind. And this continuity is understood in terms of Uh, processes of sense making. So when an organism, a living organism, uh, develops a perspective on, on something. This is still a bit too, too theoretical. What has to do with, with, with love. Well, in a uh, paper I, I wrote with Hannah de Jaeger, we developed our inactive account of love, where we say that it is a process of participatory sense-making. When uh, two or more uh, li living beings are in processes of existential encounters, and through these encounters they build their perspective together. But still, I think that it is important that I say something more uh, concrete uh, for defining this, this kind of love, especially when we speak about love of nature. What does it mean to have this kind of existential engagement with, with nature, right? Is, is it possible to actively love nature or could we just love other uh, specific and unique human beings so i don't know mike if you wanted that i proceed in, well in yeah this so, way. so yes. could, yeah well, let's, let's let's maybe pause for a second yeah <laughs> uh, there's a there's a lot on the on the table already yeah. um but um maybe just to again we're just getting our our feet wet here um yeah. an initial question that you know that one might have with with this project that you're engaged in is what does, you know, what, what is the business of philosophy here? So, you know, I could kind of imagine studying love um, or studying people's relationship with the environment, um, the emotional relationship with the environment, say, from a, um, from a psychological perspective as a psychological phenomenon, or we might think about this love or the relationships with the environment as a sociological phenomenon that we could study using the tools from that field. Or we could think kind of historically how the idea of love has changed over time or how this concept or these ideas play out in different cultural contexts, you know, kind of a historical perspective. So before we kind of dive more in depth into your arguments, which I do want to do, of course, is just maybe to set the stage by, you know, getting your thoughts on what is the role for philosophy here? Just as an initial question, why are we turning to the tools of philosophy in order to engage with this phenomenon? Yes, so in, in this paper, I, I do at least three things, I, I would say. The first one is that really I'm, I'm working with language. So I'm, I'm trying to uh, refine the way we speak about our engagement with, with nature. And so also when we speak about our love of nature and try to see really what we mean with this and also try to work with new words and new concepts that can try to change our 
ways of interacting with nature. So if we can use a, um, a kind of language that is more, uh, uh, that has to do more with engagement instead of taking nature as, for example, the object, just an object, and I'm a spectator of this beautiful landscape. But the nature is more like my interactive partner, and I can find new words uh, to, to express this. I, we can say that working with language, we can also uh, transform our perception and our practice in, in nature. So the first level is language. The second one that has to do with uh, more uh, practice-oriented kind of philosophy. So a kind of philosophy that is very much uh, situated, contextualized, that has a bottom-up approach and that wants to tackle some pressing issues of uh, our days. And the third point is a conceptual work. So the idea that in order to, to work with language and also tackling these uh, practical issues, philosophy can offer a consistent conceptual framework for thinking about them. And so when you do this conceptual work, you, of course, also engage with some objections, so you discuss other perspectives, and you show why your perspective is better than others, and you offer examples, and, and so on. So, uh, but I would say that in this paper, uh, I have I have this understanding of philosophy as a, as a practice, as something that, that we do and how, how we write also our paper and what we aim for, what we want to try to, to tackle and change through our discourse, our transformation of our discourse about love of nature in this case. Right. So then, um, good. So that, 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 that's a very interesting bit of background. I think it's very helpful for, for framing. So, so the idea is both, it sounds like, to understand how we're using these ideas or these words, or if there are concepts that are kind of floating around that are linked up to these words, and in some sense, kind of help to provide clarity about what we're talking about, or to, um, um, you know, just kind of, it's, it's housekeeping in some sense, it's, to, it's, yeah, it's right. to clarify how we're we're approaching the world. But also, it's, it's not, it's not mere, not, it's not, only a descriptive project, it sounds like. There's also embedded here is an ethical project where you have some commitments um, or, you know, at least for purposes of this project, you're adopting some commitments, say that, um, you know, our relationships to nature are out of whack or we're, we have a climate crisis and there are kind of complex social, political, economic and moral reasons behind that. And so part of the goal of the project is not simply to state a, a more cleaned up version of our current relationships to nature, but also to articulate a vision of what our relationship to nature could be that would, um, that you, you know, at least arguably think would uh, kind of put us in a better position to realize um, our own kind of moral and ethical goals vis-a-vis -vis our relationship to the environment. Yeah, indeed. Yes, there is this idea that philosophy as this ethical aim or can have this ethical aim, but again, this um, ethical purpose is not framed within a universalistic account like 
like providing some principles or rules of action, but more it is an engaged ethics that is grounded in a process of transformation of the moral agent. So, and this has to do also with uh, an ancient conceptualization of philosophy, because if we take, for example, the uh, work by Pierre Hadot, a French uh, scholar, who said that philosophy in, in the Greek time was a, a a spiritual exercise of transformation of our perception and action in, in, in the world. Actually, he say more the perception of the world, but then if we read this also along with some pragmatist tools, we can say also that to change how we, we live uh, our, our daily life. So, of course, we can take philosophy in, in this way as a transformative experience. And this transformation as to, as to to do with an, an ethical transformation of self-betterment. Right. Okay, good. So, and so I think that's also placing kind of your methodology a little bit within, within the world of philosophy as well. It's just kind of um, situationalist or, you know, kind of, as you said, bottom-up approach, which is different from, you know, other approaches that are going to start with principles and then mm -hmm. reason about situations from principles. And you, and you want to, how, how hardcore are you, by the way, within the, the situation? Because, you know, there are different versions of this. Um, <laughs> you know, are you yeah. someone that thinks that, like, there are, there are no principles, that it's not just mm -hmm. a matter of figuring out what the principles are? Because, um, you know, my, one concern that I've, that I've seen articulated, if you take a very hardcore version of the situationalist perspective, is that it almost makes it impossible to do the work of... Um, of philosophizing, of thinking about, you know, because if it's just the situation and there are no general principles that we can abstract, it just seems almost to do away with the whole project of, of reasoning. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And I think that the title of my paper says a lot about this because I say loving the earth by loving a place. So my aim is starting from specific context to, to get to the universal. So I'm not denying the, the universal dimension, but I start from, from the bottom to get there. Great. So uh, we can say that it is a relational account and not a relativist uh, account mm -hmm. in, in, this, in this regard. Mm -hmm. so, so, so great, that's all super helpful again. It helps to situate, as it were, uh, your, your thinking within this, you know, kind of broader, um, you know, broader debates about how we go about the process of doing moral reasoning. Um, so just to return to the to the arguments that you were, um, you were introducing right at the top of the conversation, and we can maybe just start to unpack them a little bit. So you, one of the um, you know, kind of basic foundational bits of perspective that you offer in the paper are these three different accounts of love, which maybe we can think of as interacting with each other. Maybe they're not totally distinct, but they, you know, again, kind of illuminate what's going yes. on. There's the mm -hmm. care perspective, the um, value uh, perspective, and then the fusion model. Right. And the fusion model, this notion of oneness is, again, as you know, um, your, your 
rejecting or you're raising concerns with the fusion model vis-a-vis -vis love of nature. I guess just one uh, question quickly is, do you also reject the fusion model in the term, in terms of love vis-a-vis -vis human relations as kind of inadequate or are you going to put that to the side or how do you feel about that? Uh, yes, I refuse it also uh, regarding <laughs> human <laughs> relationship. Mm -hmm. Actually, I started from that. Uh, in this paper mm -hmm. that I already mentioned, the love in between, we were challenging the fusion account about a romantic relationship. Mm -hmm. And by writing this paper, I started to say, oh, well, but how, could we also think in terms of ro romantic relationship with non-human beings? Could we think about this, about a loving relation with a dog or a tree or mm -hmm. a place? And what I does see. it mean? And when you, you go to a uh, lot of nature, and also, especially if you read some something that is not immediately philosophical, like novels or poems, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. this fusion account is quite uh, omnipresent, right? Yeah. And also in a fascinating way. And also there are some romantic paintings that are so beautiful, uh, really expressing this immersion in, in, into nature as this, uh, this feeling of being one with nature. So I don't want to deny that we might feel in, in this way Right. But my point is that for my ethical concerns, this is not uh, the, the best way because there are many problems related to it. So yeah. we can train ourselves in different forms of love that uh, focus on difference instead, instead yeah. of oneness. It's really, yeah. really interesting. So again, just to maybe just recapitulate what you just said, it's not to say that such experiences can't be had, right? <laughs> Who knows? Maybe they can. Um, uh, you know, people attest to them in some ways, right? And, yeah. you know, th then there's an interesting question, like, should we call that love? Is that love properly understood right. or something like that, right? So that's, that's kind of interesting. That goes to the kind of conceptual clarity point. But I think part of what the argument here is, and maybe we can just delve into this because I think it's really interesting. Sorry, we're not moving you know, through through the whole paper. We're taking each step really slow. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but to um, it, it, what you just said is that it, you know that doesn't provide a good ethical basis for you know our relationships with nature. So let's let's unpack that a little bit because I can imagine a counter argument. Somebody coming back and say, "What are you talking about? Like the that that feeling of oneness with nature and." Um, the the, the um, disillusion of the boundary between self and other is like the most profound experience that you could have vis-a-vis um, -vis the natural world. And it's a wonderful foundation for um, for an environmental ethic. It, it, it immediately leads us to be less selfish, um, to, you know, to engage in politics, to um, to be committed to the to the preservation and integrity of the system, and and that that is a really good because you do need emotions. I think you're as Lauda, you are a philosopher of emotions, and I I don't think it would be too much to uh, speculate that you would say that emotions are an important part of politics and political right. engagement. And they would say that is a really excellent. It's in, in fact the best foundation for and most powerful and motivating foundation for. Um, for an environmental politics, so so that's just to offer the the counter argument. So I'm curious what your what your response is to that. Uh, 
Yeah, that we miss a lot if we start from, from oneness. And what we miss is the rich biodiversity and the otherness and the mystery that is implied by difference. But not only the mystery, really recognizing and acknowledging the uniqueness uh, of, of the other. And this uniqueness is also in terms of radical difference. So the problem is that, okay, we can value uh, s- s- someone only if he is or she or it is like me. Not at all. We need to value he, she or it exactly because it is or she or is totally different from me. And so this really had to do with uh, making space for the value of, of difference, the ethical value of difference. And this has to do with nature. When we think of nature, like, not just like, you know, this uh, environment, this surrounding, this landscape, but as this biodiversity, diversity uh, or full of different living beings and and so also if we have this perspective that is grounded on difference we can also acknowledge uh, many tensions and and problems so again I, I do not just care about a beautiful landscape and also this was one of the motives that we can find in, in, in many poems you know so the value of a landscape is very often described in terms of, of, of the beauty of, of this place. Uh, the point is also, and especially now, caring and valuing a, a place, especially because it, it is a mess and there are a lot of problems. It is a polluted river and it is also our fault. Mostly it is our fault if it is a polluted river, right? So an uh, ethics of difference, I strongly believe that provide better tools for really engaging for the well-being of, of a place, mm. better than just focusing on sameness or oneness. Yeah, yeah, great. Well, that's very, that's really, that's a really interesting uh, perspective. And I like, really love that notion that on the one hand, you can, you can love a place or you can have a certain, let's put aside the word love for, for now, but <laughs> you can have a certain kind of feeling that you get when yeah. you, when you see a, a wondrous landscape and you're on a mountaintop and there's a beautiful vista or something like that. And that's, you can have that emotional experience. And then there's another emotional experience that you have when, um, when you see a polluted, um, polluted river and that can create different kinds of feelings, but, um, but maybe you know, thinking of that as love is one of them. There's a Pete Seeger song. So Pete Seeger is an American folk singer um, mm. who um, uh, is an important figure in kind of the history of U.S. Uh, folk music. He um, uh, was actually uh, doing his thing back in, uh, you know, like the Depression and the aftermath of that. And then through the 60s and the 70s, he was kind of uh, very active in the civil rights movement. And he was also an important figure in the early environmental movement in the U.S., and he has a song about the Hudson River, which, of course, is the river uh-huh. that borders New York City. It's called Sailing Up My Dirty River. Uh-huh. Um, but yes. still, I still I love her and I keep the dream that someday um, mm-hmm. she'll she'll run clean. That's kind of the idea. So it's like I think that that's quite, quite always I've always found that quite poignant. And I think it relates exactly to, to that point is that you can that feeling of tenderness that you can have for for a um, what we might call a degraded resource. Mm hmm. Yes, totally. I yeah. totally agree. Yeah. 
So, okay, so if we're, if we're moving away from this fusion model towards, you know, care or value or, or something else, you, you, you've put, you know, there are some other ideas that you have in the paper and that you've put on the table in our conversation too. So one um, idea that's in the, in the paper is you say that, you know, nature or not nature in general, I think, but a, a situated, yeah. a place, right? That's where a kind of place comes into the, to the mm -hmm. picture, right? Where we're talking about, mm -hmm. um, you know, where you live and, and your environment, your immediate environment as a partner in a participatory process of making meaning. Okay. So, mm -hmm. um, so there's a bunch of different <laughs> ideas that are kind of simultaneously in there. So there's, there's meaning making, mm -hmm. um, there's, what it means for, you know, for a, a place to be a partner. And then I guess that's related to the notion of like participation, joint participation mm -hmm. in mm. meaning making. So I, I wonder if you're using, so there's sense making, there's meaning making. Those are both ideas that are in the paper. Is there a difference between those things or are we talking about the same thing? And then, and, and maybe also just what do we mean when we, or what do you mean when you're talking about the process of sense making or meaning making and mm. you know if those two things are different from each other yeah so basically i mean that there is not a i and a you that are already constituted so that they are just two objects two substances that are already made are there and at some point they meet uh, the what I am and what you are emerges from our interaction. And this is the case also with a place. So we can speak in terms of niche creation. So the process in which an environment starts to become my place in replying to my needs. And I can also reply to the needs of this place. So the, the, there are interactions in, in, in between. And this interaction are conceptualized as a process of making sense or creating a, a, a meaning, so a, a field of significance. And why meaning? Because in this process of niche creation, I'm trying to reply to my existential needs. We can think about them in terms of survival, so a place can reply to my needs of uh, having food, if I, I, I make a garden, but also uh, relational needs, so if I go in a place because there is a nice community there. So I started to, to share some practices with the other people that are, are living there and, and so on. So the point here is not really understanding a place as something that is already there, but something that in a process, an interactive, through an interactive process, something that can become my place. But also, uh, in, in, in this process, I, I'm going to change. And that's why I, I use this um, concept of becoming native at the ground of my conceptualization. So I can say that in, 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 the, in my work, there are two prominent um, inspirational figures on the background. One is the French philosopher Lucy Rigaret, who developed this view of love as something that is free from this idea of possession of an object. So it is not an object already constituted that I can get because I desire it 
So this is one. And the second one is Freya Matthews, who is a philosopher from Australia, who developed a view on um, being in, in nature as a dialogical encounter, encounter. So I understand this dialogue from within a place as a process of participatory sense-making. Right. Okay, great. So there's, a, there's again, a bunch of um, interesting things happening here simultaneously. So one is, um, again, this, this notion of sense-making and participatory sense-making. So I think some folks might think of, of sense-making or meaning-making as having a semantic element to it, right? It's like, you know, just um, conceptual kind of element to it. But what it sounds like what you're talking about is it may be something different. Again, you can, you can um, welcome your correction. So then the idea being that what's happening is this kind of recursive process where a, a person, um, a human being, is their 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 sense of self identity and how they understand the world in both a both perhaps a semantic sense, but also you know in an emotional sense or just yeah. how sense is embedded in their daily practices. Right. I would say that more fundamentally as a non ontopoetic process. Yeah. We this, could that, use this word, which I'll yes. admit, I'm not, um, it's not one that I, I, I use very often in my day-to-day -day life. So, <laughs> so what, is, uh, what are we talking about there? Self-creation. So uh, if we start from this idea that the world is not made of uh, already uh, made substances or objects or building blocks, um, we can see how uh, what we call object or things or living beings uh, uh, emerge out of a process of interaction. And the process of interaction I'm focusing here is interaction between uh, at least one living being and other beings that are inhabiting a place. And so it is uh, uh, at the beginning and an, an embodied process. And well, then in, in the inactive literature, the, there is a, a, a very interesting and important uh, book uh, on how also language, uh, I, I mean, also um, uh, verbal uh, co communication can emerge from, from, from the body. So I'm not just speaking about, you know, uh, sensory motor relationship. But uh, uh, the, the point here is really uh, taking sense-making as an embodied practice of living beings that inhabit uh, a place. So it is not uh, just conceptual, or we can say that the conceptual dimension emerge out of uh, embodied interaction. So this is uh, the starting point of the inactive approach of, of cognition. So understood. Okay, I think I think I'm getting at it. So so the idea, the distinction that you're drawing is, you know, that we build our ways of understanding the world through, as you say, an embodied process, an interactive process with our environment, and that's that's pretty foundational to how you think about a yeah. lot of things. I take, and so um, as opposed to say, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure anybody actually holds this view, but but something like that, all that humans are doing when we make meaning is you know, um, kind of being disembodied, you know, agents yeah. that it, I'm not, not even an agent, just disembodied. You just, 
entities that read meaning that kind of pre-exists in the world the, the of you know concepts that are kind of out there and that we're just, it's just a process of extracting them um like it through a refining process or something like that um it's 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 rather what's going on is again it's it's this engaged process of, of sense making so mm. i guess the um so now now that we have that if that's built into our structure of how we understand we, the way that we come to understand the world, right, um, mm -hmm. is this embodied, uh, engaged process. It seems kind of natural in some way for um, there to be a role for your, your physical place, because it sounds as though it doesn't even make sense for us to come to an understanding of anything outside of this active, engaged, recursive process through which we come to understand the world. So mm -hmm. if that's true, I guess what I'm trying to distinguish is is kind of everybody in the world who's mm -hmm. just in it adheres adheres to like the nature of how of sense making basically as we're mm -hmm. defining it isn't automatically a lover of nature <laughs> just because <laughs> they have to be in some sense because they're in in order to come to any sense making they're engaged with a place and because that's where they're hmm. embedded and that's how they come to understand anything or build mm -hmm. build a notion of the world. And so is it just like automatic that someone um, has this participatory um, meaning-making process or what distinguishes mm. the, the love of nature from just how we come to understand the world? I would say that it is not automatic, <laughs> unfortunately, maybe, but also this is good, that it's not automatic uh, because it has to do with develop, the development of certain virtues, attitudes, and it is a strenuous practice. Or at least I, I wanted to stress this dimension. So uh, there are other colleagues that really working on this continuity uh, between uh, life and, and mind, and also continuity between life and emotion, can say that uh, a living being is just by being a living being is a lover. I, I don't see that. I, uh, I, I think that love is something that should be nourished. So we can say that maybe we have a, um, a basic att attachment to, to our place, right? But this could be also very narcissistic or egotistical. Also, when I, I was defining this relationship, when I say, this is my place, but this my place can be very much self-centered. And, 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 and this is not love, because love also needs the perspective that is other-oriented. So I would say that while love, it is not against, of course, this uh, um, embodied uh, perspective on, on, on sense-making. We can say that can come fr from, from there, right? In certain cases, more naturally than, than others, but... Uh, uh, a practice is is needed. A practice of cultivation of of, of certain virtues of care and uh, towards the place. And in my paper, I I uh, try to uh, start uh, listing these virtues. But my my main goal in this paper is providing the framework for understanding them. So I speak 
uh, in terms of inactive listening. So mm-hmm. when you start to listen to, to, to a place in a certain way or in a certain manner. Yes, great. Okay, good. And so um, just to give me one final thing, and then uh, you know, we can kind of move on to that, that point about listening and the virtue stuff, which is super interesting. But just to get just on this connection between, you know, the almost like an epistemic set of views about how we come to build a, you know, sense of the world and this mm-hmm. relationship to, to loving nature and the right and the idea is that it's not automatic, right? It's a, it's a, it's a practice that we need to cultivate, and, you know, has ethical dimensions to it. Tell me if this sounds right to you on your view that a love of nature in the way that you describe, right, which is really a love of place and the, you know, um, that you have a particular relationship with is uh, arises naturally from a correct understanding of how we do sense making. Um, but that, you know, people often are, are mistaken about that and they can be, you know, and that can lead to kind of egotism or this notion of separateness or whatever. But if you really understand how, you know, you make sense of the world, that would then naturally lead you to this kind of uh, relationship and attitudes that would be part of a practice of uh, that you would cultivate that involves loving nature. Mm. Yes, uh, this is a good way for understanding it. I I didn't phrase it in, in this way in my paper, but I think that it could be a, a good way for uh, for getting there. Also, because it it can really mm, point to my work on language, right? So um, how we can revise or transform our our language in order to start to perceive our relationship with a place in a, in a different way, in a, in, in a better way. And in order to do it, we need to have the correct understanding. And so if we keep going with this dualistic assumption that uh, nature uh, is in a way, just a resource that we can use and it is just out there forever, just for us. Or nature is just a weak object that we need to to protect. So here I'm just using the the two extreme that they are both sharing the idea that nature is just an object out there. We are keep um, working with this dualistic account that does not that underestimate the value of this uh, fundamental relationship of inhabiting a place as what constitutes ourselves and the place. So what I said at the beginning, this fundamental process of sense making that uh, or we can also call it this fundamental process of interdependent autonomy of selves that create themselves in 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 relationship and well, so understanding, yes, and, and I, I will take this epistemic dimension that you rightly stress also in, in, an, in an affective way, right? Because I say that, well, there is this continuity between life and cognition and life and emotions. So I'm not going to talk a lot about emotions uh, here today with you, but uh, we can also um, try to get an account of understanding understanding that is more affective, right? That a way of really uh, appreciating the things for what, uh, for what it is. And in there, there is our account of Love, the one that I de- developed with Hannah de Jaeger in 
the love in between paper, where we say that um, love is this desire to know more about the other, ourselves, and the world together. So here you see, we, we are taking the affective dimension here, spell it out in terms of desire, this, this motivation, this affective motivation towards what? To knowing better the other. So what does it mean, knowing better the other? Understanding it properly. So, and in this paper, I say that listening is a fundamental practice that we need to undertake in order to have this correct understanding. Right. So then, so one of the things, this is another interesting, really interesting move in the paper that, you know, there's a relationship between loving, um, listening, and I think learning. Those were the things that I kind of came up with. And, and, and listening, I took to be understood kind of metaphorically. You mean like attending to, um, not necessarily like using your ears, right? But yeah. Uh, right. Um, and so this, so this is really interesting. This, this, it, to, to me, that struck me as, arising very naturally from the, the, the thread of your arguments that we've, we're thinking about being situated, respecting difference, right? As kind of difference is an important foundation for love rather than this notion of unity or oneness. Um, and then, you know, if you really, you know, do love something, then you want to learn about it. And that involves a, a practice of attention. Um, the, one of the things that I think is another very closely related move in the paper that I think is maybe more controversial um, and again, I want to I'd be very, you know, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it and explore is this notion that not only does it make sense for us to listen to or attend to our place, but our place listens to us, too, <laughs> that, it's a, that it's a mutual relationship. Yeah. Um, my, my father um, used to say when we were kids, um, don't love anything that can't love you back. Um, and, and he kind of meant that with respect to like stuff, like don't become overly materialistic. He was actually, I'm not sure he followed that advice, but that was the idea. Don't care too much about it, objects in your world. Um, and so the question that is related to this is, can nature love us back? And kind of some, and you work with some of these, you don't say it exactly that way, but you talk about, you, you raise this question, like the notion of having community with a tree. And you, and you ask, you know, is that just a solipsistic fantasy? And your answer is no. But, you know, when I saw that, I was like, well, you know, it's a worthwhile question, right? Are we just imagining this stuff? Or we just project, again, like, mm. rather than listening and really coming to understand the thing for what it is, we're like projecting or anthropomorphizing or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. And so, so again, yeah, this is, this is quite interesting. So one of the things um, you say in the paper is... If I treat a river with love, it will listen to me by being healthy. And so um, so that struck me as a pretty concrete notion of, of what it means to, um, what, how you're using that term, listen in this kind of mutualistic way vis-a-vis -vis, vis -vis, you know, non-human systems. And so, so, what, what, so what is it, in what sense is that listening, I guess? <laughs> That's, I guess, <laughs> what I mean. So like, so the river is gonna respond to my behavior right? So, and to not just my behavior, but the behavior of people around me, right? So if the, to take the Hudson River, for example, you know, um, the, the Hudson River listened to New York City and New York City policies by being very polluted for a long time. And then once we started to, and not just New York City, but the state of New York, um, and there's a long history of different pollutants going into the Hudson River from various sources, from sewage, from 
industrial pollutants and the like. And then we started to clean up the environment and have a different attitude. Um, and we acted differently. We started to treat our sewage before dumping it into the river. We started to um, reduce and ban some of the industrial compounds that had been causing um, a lot of pollution in the Hudson River. And we even started to clean it up. Um, we started to, um, you know, do all things, kind of build parks along the riverside and, and whatnot. And then the, the, the river has had made an amazing recovery. It's much less polluted and um, it's it's much safer place. So, but that strikes me as a little bit different than li listening, at least as I normally think of the term listening. Um, it's kind of responding for sure. It's it's changing. There's a mutualistic. There's a relationship between what I do. There's feedbacks between what humans do and what is going on with the river. So I guess the question is. What what's the value or what's the mean what's the meaning of using the term listening in that context and um, is that um, what do we get out of using that that word to describe what's going on in that situation? Well, this is an amazing question, and I think that I need to write another paper <laughs> to reply to it <laughs> and think a lot for properly uh, provide uh, an answer. But yes, you you really uh, got to to my to to my point when you stressed the um, the ethical value of uh, really acknowledging that our uh, behaviors uh, has not just an impact on, on, on the object of our behavior, but uh, the, the object replies to, to us. But you say, oh, well, but maybe we can understand this in terms of feedbacks or, you know, consequences of our actions. Is the place really listening to me? So, of course, here the, the point is really uh, try to um, understand listening, not just, you know, listening through, through the ears, but uh, not only metaphorical and this has been also uh, this objection has been addressed also by some of my commentators because this paper has been published along some 10 peer commentaries uh, from from colleagues and and some really uh, asked this this question so i don't want neither to take to say oh well but listening here is just metaphorical right uh, for me it's important keeping listening for stressing the embodied dimension right and and the embodied dimension really means that by being there and living with the place, within the place, in a certain way, treating it badly or in, in, in the best possible way, the place can reply to me in a, in a different way. And so here, when I say listening in an embodied perspective, I want also to say not just through the ears, but also through touch, through smelling. Of course, here I'm, I'm enlarging the spectrum of listening also to other sense, to the other senses, but this this is important because it means more like really uh, being being open to to the place from our um, embodied living experience, and so this can bring us to perceive this dimension of shared aliveness that uh, uh, in 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 my paper is 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 the way. Mm, through which this dialogical encounter can 
can can take place. Uh, I I would say that. Um, if I will write another paper <laughs> about about this, I I can uh, consider uh, the option of not necessarily needing needing a, um, a conceptual framework that uses words that have to do with uh, language and and communication, right? Because I started to think about listening because my research question was how. Can I communicate with uh, uh, another being that is radically different from me and we do not share a common language, right? So this was my research uh, question there, right? And that's why I have all these uh, words that has to do with language and communication. And also because uh, one of my main interlocutors in this paper is Fria Matthews, who speaks in terms of dialogue, right? But it would be very interesting to... to uh, to enlarge, uh, maybe, I have to consider this, to enlarge this a bit. The risk is, is missing the, uh, something that is unique of us uh, humans, as living beings, that we are linguistic bodies, right? And this is the title of that book that I was referring before about this uh, conceptualization of meaning, verbal communication and language from an inactive point of view by De Paolo, Kufari and, and De Jaeger. Uh, so I don't want neither to reduce human beings just to to simply bodies without uh, language, perspective, and, 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 and concepts. So uh, the point of keeping this linguistic framework uh, could, could be important. But, well, I, I agree that more work maybe is necessary here. But, well, I, I say more about this in my answer to, to the objections that has been addressed to, to the paper, where I, I try to explain why listening as a concept can be useful beyond the ethical uh, implication that I think that these are evident because focusing on, on, on listening and focusing on a mutual relationship, we can really see how much um, we, we, can, we can do in embracing an inactive ethics uh, towards loving a place. Yes, so, so I would... Um... Uh, maybe we can, re if we have time, we can return to this. Cause I think there's still lots of interesting um, stuff to explore in this in this domain of of kind of the mutuality or dialogic or communication with um, with nature or with a place. But I, I wanted to um, touch on a couple of other um, kind of questions, and then again, if we have a few minutes, we can maybe return to some of this because it's all really interesting stuff. But the other um, kind of big question that I had, big bigger picture question, maybe is, you know, do you see um, this kind of relationship to a specific place as like essential for living a good life? Is it really like kind of a, like a core part of a complete human existence? And one of the reasons I was just thinking about this is, you know, some people move around a lot. Um, they don't necessarily build a really close, you know, deep connection to any to any particular place. In fact, you've moved around quite a bit um, over over the over the years, right? And so, so what do we think of academics or others, and you know, people in different kinds of jobs, or people who have have been forced from their homelands because of political circumstances, or war, or economic concerns, or whatever? Um, 
you know, that so that it's it disrupts the various economic, political, social, or personal or psychological factors that um, you know, just make it difficult for someone to build this deep connection to a place that you're describing. So, so I guess, yeah, so the question is, is that, um, you know, is that really like making it difficult for them to lead you know, complete ethical lives? And I guess a related question is, is it essential for engagement with environmental politics in a, in a deep and sustained way um, to have the, the type of love of nature and love of place and to, to be able to build that over time that, that you describe? Oh, yes. So I wanted to say two, two things at this regard. First, that uh, loving a place should not be a privilege. And as we know, unfortunately, many people have been banished by their place for different reasons, political reasons, wars, migrations, economical crises. Etc. And so we could say that there is a kind of structural violence, and that uh, if we say that, well, loving a place is uh, a crucial activity in order to have a, a better life, in order to develop in your listening skills, uh, learning to love, etc. So this is terrible. And so we could also say that in, in, in certain situations, we academics that are forced, not if we choose to, that are forced to moving around for having a job, we are under the pressure of a, um, of a very poisonous, poisonous violence. In a way, we can reply in this way. But I want also to say that... Uh, Focusing on loving a place, uh, so this situated account of uh, love of nature does not mean that you don't have, you don't travel anymore, so that you just live in your place because this also would be extremely problematic because you could you could start to develop a very narrow mind, not appreciating different places, etc., etc. So the point would be to uh, allow yourself enough time to start loving also new places. And maybe you can do it uh, if you had the chance, at least for a while, of sp spending a good amount of time in a place and also building certain relationships also with other environmental activists, etc. And then when you start to travel around, so you, you can try to do the same in these different places, even if you are going to live there just for a year or, or two. Um, so I, I would reply with these two answers. And also, I would like to add these things, that now we are going also to inhabit uh, virtual places. And also these are important for, in terms of um, building relationships for uh, doing something good for the environment, right? So we can also think about a network of people who uh, have this kind of relationship with their places that although they had to, to live, they can keep uh, nurture the relationship to that place, to these grassroots movements, for example, and also create connections with people who are working in the same or similar or even different manner in a, in a, in a different country, etc. So I think that um, 
In a way, I wanted to stress that there is a dimension of structural violence in, in this constant need of uh, moving or when um, in the academic jobs or also for, for other reasons, as they say at, at the beginning, but also that it is possible to love a place also if you do not commit to this specific place for all your entire life. And this is also important because allows the person to do not just be bounded to that specific place, that this could be also very problematic because can become a, a form of too strong attachment, but starting to love different places. So how this love of a place can extend and expand uh, towards other places that are recognized in their uniqueness. So you started to care for them as well. And this also can help in this process of uh, moving towards the love of the earth and not just the love of my tiny little garden, right? So thinking in this way, we can also see the bright side of moving around, that you have the opportunity of loving new places and so loving more places. The point is that from this plurality, you don't miss the individual and the specificity of, of the places, right? But you can keep uh, the differences, just extending the, the number. Hmm. Um, so we, can, we should love a place, but we don't have to be monogamous. We can... <laughs> yes, we can speak in this way. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> we can kind of, you know, be a little bit, be a little bit promiscuous in how, yeah. we, um, how, we love, how we love places. Um, <laughs> so uh, you, bet, you mentioned this, but I think I, I wanted to highlight it because I thought it was a really interesting um, other argument in the paper or a kind of consequence of the argument in the paper is how you, you build up um, these, you know, it's fair to say emotional connections that people have to places or these particular relations they have with their with their with with specific places um, into something that looks like an environmental movement <laughs> that is able actually able to accomplish broad political change. Because of course, if as you just noted, if we're all just focused on our own, protecting our own little gardens, um, you know that's that's not really doesn't at first blush seem like a good foundation for political action. But as you argue in the paper and as you noted. If you're, you know, your love of your specific place also creates um, the opportunity to um, understand the bonds that others have with their places and to build in a kind of a networked fashion, um, you know, everyone starting with their situated kind of experience and relationship with a place or places, um, you know, that creates a sense of common understanding and that then can be, you know, uh, serve as a, as a, again, kind of a foundation for a broader collective movement. Um, so that, that definitely strikes me as, as, as really interesting. I mean, one of the, I wonder, um, we'll kind of get into the end of our time, but, you know, there's an old, um, there's an old kind of oldish expression, you know, think globally, act locally. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you would just would you reverse that and say, think locally, act globally, or, you know, <laughs> love locally, you know, you know, engage in politics globally? Like, what, what are your kind of culminating thoughts on how, you know, given that so many of the challenges, environmental challenges that we face now are truly global in scope, climate change, plastics pollution, you know, um, problems with the oceans, you know, there's just a really vast number, the, the really 
this generations and the subsequent generations environmental tasks are really global. Um, you know, how do we, um, you know, what is the relationship between the global and, and the local in your, in your framework? Wow, I really like how you phrase it. I can also maybe rephrase it again and say, by loving locally, you can act globally. <laughs> so I really like this, uh, you know, that um, the final point is not just um, love your place, right? So you, you start from, from, from there and... But it is not just as a as a mean, if you want, for a better and, and bigger end. It is just because you you it is what you can do actually, right? Because you you can work from where where you are. And I'm saying this because I I noticed that some of the environmental despair or anxiety or grief uh, arise exactly from the idea that the problems are too big and too far and too global. And so I cannot do anything to change it. And so what I wanted also to show with this, this paper is that we can do something and it is in our power and what we can do is loving our place but not stopping there but by correctly understanding our place listening to it and so loving it we can act uh, for for the earth in a participatory manner so here really for this um movement that starts from the local and goes to the global, the uh, concept and practice of participation is really crucial because it really speaks in terms of uh, community building or nectar or relationship, right? And so we can also say that you, you can start to, to build your relationships in, in the place you, you inhabit and you started to extend this uh, a bit more and, and, and started to create knots with other people who, who are doing uh, the same in, in their place. So, but this is not something that happened automatically. <laughs> Again, I don't think, I don't believe automatism very much. I am a responsibilist, so I think that we need to, to do things because we care, and so we put effort. And so there are strenuous, strenuous practices, and if you want also um, little actions that would require time. So, you know, uh, criticism to my view could be, oh, well, but this is very interesting and nice, blah, blah, blah. But we need uh, an answer right now. We don't have time anymore. So maybe it's better to just go for some um, universal regulation or, or rules because we don't have time for this uh, movement. Uh, well, I don't reply to this objection in, in this paper. Uh, on the opposite, I try to, to show the, the benefits that can arise from, from my uh, proposal. 
Great. Okay. Well, you know, um, it's a it's a really fascinating set of ideas, and I think this link between the you know this notion of our connections to our place and where we live, and you know these emotional connections that we have, and um, the the scale of global problems that we face on many environmental issues is is a fascinating one. Um, you really have offered a, a, a super interesting perspective on uh, on on these set of questions, and so I appreciate. Um, the the work you've you've put into thinking about all, all this stuff and the and the chance to chat with you today about it, Laura. <laughs> thank you, Mike. Really, thank you very much because you, as always, made me think a lot. So I have already some new ideas that I want to develop and also some objections to reply. And well, there is work to be done. <laughs> great, great. Well, that, that, that's always the, a good end for a conversation is, uh, is future work. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Mike.